For most of the second half of the 20th century, if someone told you that she was from Berlin, Germany, that could mean one of two very different things. That's because Berlin was not always one unified city. If someone said she is from Berlin, you would have to ask, would you be more specific? Are you from West Berlin or are you from East Berlin? Clarifying that, whether she is from West Berlin or East Berlin, would tell you more than just a geographical fact. It would tell you more about the specific hardships of her surroundings. You see, after World War II, the city of Berlin and Germany as a whole came under the administration of the Allied powers, that is, the United States, the United Kingdom, France, and the Soviet Union. This administrative agreement was meant to be temporary until Germany could get itself back on its feet. But that didn't happen. It was anything but temporary. The Cold War soon set in, and relations between the Western Allies and the Soviet Union soon went to kaputs. This meant that Eastern Germany came under the control of the Soviets. And within Eastern Germany, though, is the capital of Berlin, of which the Western portion was agreed to come under the administration of the Western Allies. So here we have, in the mid middle of Soviet-occupied East Germany, was the divided city of Berlin. West and East. And it didn't take long to see the differences between the two. West Berlin became known as the Island of Freedom within East Germany. It received aid from the Marshall Plan, the $12 billion project from the United States to help the Western European countries to recover after World War II. West Berlin is where professionals and industries flocked. West Berlin was where you could still get quality imported items. Meanwhile, in East Berlin, there was virtually no industry. There were no professionals. They still had to pay war reparations to the Soviets. What's more is that they didn't receive any stimulus like the Marshall Plan. So here we have vast differences in one city, West Berlin and East Berlin. And by 1960, the vast differences between the two sides of the formerly one city were so great that a thousand people a day were going from East Berlin to West Berlin. East Berlin was losing people and money left and right. So what did they do? They walled them in. The Berlin Wall stood for nearly 30 years, and the differences between East and West Berlin remained. Those in East Berlin were still desperate to get to the West. In fact, in those 30 years of the Berlin Wall, 100,000 people from the East attempted to escape. 5,000 people made it, and 200 of them were killed. November 9th, 1989, came after a series of culminating protests the announcement from East Germany that citizens of East Berlin were free to go. They could visit West Berlin. One journalist described that weekend as the greatest street party in the history of the world. 
Because two million people from East Berlin visited West Berlin that weekend. So we return to our original encounter. You meet someone, it's toward the end of the 20th century, and she tells you that she's from Berlin. So naturally, you ask her, well, are you from East Berlin or West Berlin? Because that's going to mean you had one or two very greatly different experiences. You want to clarify, because that clarification makes a big difference. So in this part of Galatians we're looking at today, we see that the Apostle Paul seeks to clarify something by getting more specific. You see, there are these new teachers in Galatia. We've been calling them the agitators. And the agitators kept on tossing around the fact that they are sons of Abraham, that they are physically descended from Abraham. Well, the Apostle Paul hears that like someone saying they're from Berlin. That, okay, you're a son of Abraham. But that can mean one of two very different things. Just like being from Berlin did not mean you automatically enjoyed the freedom of West Berlin. So being a son of Abraham did not mean you automatically enjoyed the full freedom and status of God's family. It could mean one of two very different things, being a son of Abraham. So let's see what Paul is talking about here. If you're not there, turn in your Bible to Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. We've spent a while on this page. It's page 974. Next week, we'll make it to the next page. Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. God's word reads, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, are like Isaac. You are children of the promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Now, after reading that text, as I did throughout this week, this text for me, it coming in Galatians, reminded me of the anxiety I would get at every football practice. So at every football practice, I knew that something was coming at the end. I knew that every practice, we would have conditioning at the end. 
So Galatians 4, verses 21 to 31, is the conditioning in my mind that I know has been coming, and now it's here. But just like conditioning is meant for a purpose, it's given for a purpose, even though it's hard, so it is here. When we slow down and consider these verses, we can distill it to a main important point. And that is, friends, that entrance into the family of God depends not on our natural efforts, but God's supernatural grace in Christ. Entrance into the family of God depends not on natural efforts, but God's supernatural grace in Christ. Though this is a tough passage, Paul develops this argument, I think, in a unique way. Uh, and I think we can see it developed in three stages. And if you're familiar with ping pong, it's kind of like ping pong. I don't know if you've, if you've played ping pong. Ping pong is like miniature tennis. It's called table tennis. It's, although you're, it's not like tennis, you're standing behind the court and like you're a monster above the court. So you have this little ball. And Paul develops his argument in this way. It's as if these agitators are setting up Paul with a really easy shot. We're talking about a lob that's just coming up and up and up, and Paul's eyes are getting real big. The setup of that argument comes in verses 21 to 23. And then Paul sees it, and he spikes it. That comes in verses 24 to 26. And finally, the closing part, verses 28 to 31, we see the point that Paul scores. He applies this argument to the lives of the Galatians. So it develops like ping pong. So let's first see how it sets up, verses 21 to 23. And before we get into how it sets up, in order to see that well, as always, we got to know what's coming in Galatians, what we have been through so far. So we've picked up this book in the fourth chapter. Last summer, we went through the first three chapters. So if you just look at chapter four so far, you can let your eyes kind of glean over it. Uh, Paul is at pains kind of to do this main thing of showing the Galatians the futility of going back to relying on the law to gain status with God. It's at pains to show them, don't do that. Keep relying on Christ, not yourself. So if we look at all of chapter 4 so far, we can see the different ways Paul's made that argument. In verses 1 to 7, has been more of a theological argument. He says that it is God who has accomplished their freedom, their redemption. The death of the sinless Son of God was the price paid for our forgiveness and the price paid for our status with God. So in light of that, in light of the forgiven, reconciled, family status with God, it's not something that we achieve, it's something that we receive. So last week, verses 8 to 20, we saw that Paul's plea for them was less of a theological argument, though it was, it was more of a personal plea. He again reminds them of who they were before God's grace, of the bondage that they were in. He reminds them that they received this gospel, that Christ has done it. They received this at first with joy. And he reminds them that those who are trying to pull them away from Christ actually don't really care about them. All they care about is being made much of. But Paul is in anguish over them. He cares about the Galatians so much that he's willing to speak the truth to them 
no matter how it makes them feel about him. He is willing to let them be angry at him if it means him telling them the truth. Don't go back to relying on yourself. This is Paul's argument in Galatians 4. And he continues it in the closing part of his chapter. He argues that same argument by using a biblical illustration. So to understand that illustration, we have to see how Paul sets it up. We have to see how that ball is getting higher and higher and higher before Paul spikes it. Well, this setup begins with who Paul is addressing. Look at verse 21. Look at verse 21 and see who Paul is addressing in this section. He's writing to those who desire to be under the law. We should pause and clarify what this means. Desiring to be under the law means relying on the law, specifically the Old Testament law given through Moses. Relying on the law for your standing with God. And it represents a principle that one commentator says that those who desire to be under the law are those who believe that the way to God is by observing a set of rules. These are those who desire to be under the law. Where do we see this? I mean, who, who does this? Friends, this is everyone. This is all other approaches to God. These are the people who seek to live by a set of rules and find comfort in how well they are following those sets of rules. These are people who think they must live by a set of rules but are guilt-ridden because they know they don't measure up to those set of rules. These are the people who claim that they don't have a set of rules for themselves, that they've figured it out all on their own. But in actuality, they're relying on their own intellect. And they are condescending toward other people who just haven't figured it out. People who desire to rely on themselves. That's who Paul is addressing. And friends, we should ask ourselves something. How is that contrary to the gospel? How is desiring to be under the law contrary to the main message of Christianity? Notice where that phrase, under the law, comes in chapter 4, where it comes before. Can you find it? It comes in verse 4, under the law. There, Paul says that Christ was born under the law. So we could get confused here. It's not that Christians just toss out the law and they don't care about trying to obey God. No, that's not the case. It's that we know that we can't rely on our own obedience to gain status with God. We obey, but we do not rely on our own obedience to save us. Instead, we rely on Christ's obedience We did not fulfill the demands of the law. We failed miserably, but Christ fulfilled the demands of the law in our place. And he took the curse of the law that we deserved on himself. So he can give us his obedience and he can take from us our curse. So it's not that we don't care about obeying the law. We just don't rely on it to save us. We rely on Christ who's done it. This is who Paul is addressing. 
those who desire to be under the law to go back to relying on themselves. And the setup continues. The ball gets higher in the air as Paul addresses those who desire to be under the law by saying something. He asks them something more specifically. Look at, the, look at verse 21. Paul asks those who desire to be under the law, do you listen to the law? The law here can refer to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah. Essentially what Paul is telling them is that the thing they are using to make their argument, the thing they are using to support their way of life, that thing actually argues against them. So they constantly appeal to the law. So Paul goes, all right, I'll, do, I'll play along with your game. I'll appeal to the law, and I'll show you how the law you appeal to actually works against you. Friends, this is a self-refuting argument. It's a self-defeating position, and we've talked about these before. It's like another argument that uh, there is no absolute truth. It's a self-refuting argument. Because for there to be no absolute truth, the statement there is no absolute truth has to be an absolute truth. So here, Paul shows the agitators that their case for relying on the law, it's flimsy. And it fails to meet its own standards. Set up. Keep going. The ball's getting higher and it reaches its peak by Paul describing Abraham's two sons. Boy, this seems like a weird direction to turn, doesn't it? Paul's, Paul just has this obsession with Abraham for some reason. And why? Why does he bring up Abraham here and really he keeps up bringing Abraham? Well, it's because that appealing to being physically related to Abraham was a favorite argument from the Jewish people of the day. That's what we saw when we read in John chapter 8. It's there that Jesus claims to be the only way people can be brought into God's kingdom and be freed from sin. And in response to that claim, the group of people there said, we don't need you because we have Abraham as our father. So these agitators in Galatia pretty much made the same argument. That what matters most is that you are a son of Abraham. And here's how you do it. They told the non-Jewish Christians, in order to be a part of the family of God, you have to look like a physical descendant of Abraham. You've got to rely on the law. You've got to do the outward functions of the law. Males, you have to be circumcised. In order to be fully included in the people of God, you've got to do the things that the sons of Abraham do. So Paul says, okay, let's test your claim that being physically related to Abraham is the thing that matters the most. Well, does that even hold up in the actual story of Abraham? Being physically related to him is what matters. Well, what he's going to show in verses 22 to 23 is that even in the original story of Abraham's family, there's more than one way to be related to him. There's a right way and there's a wrong way. So Genesis chapter 16 to 21 tell the story of Abraham's two sons. In those chapters, like we read earlier in Genesis 18, 
God tells Abraham, God promises Abraham that he would have a child who would continue the line of the Messiah, that descendant who would crush the serpent and restore Eden. And he promises Abraham that child is going to come from his wife, Sarah. Yet when we read Genesis, we see what Paul describes here in in Galatians, verses 22 to 23. And even though God promised a son with Sarah, but Abraham had a son with two different women, which, by the way, would be a normal and legal practice of the day, but not sanctioned by God. So Abraham's first son was Ishmael, who came from Hagar, and Hagar was a slave to him and his wife. Abraham, though, had this son even after God promised that he would have a son with Sarah his wife. Hagar was young and fertile. There was nothing spectacular about having a son with her. It was ordinary. It was a natural thing. But Abraham's second son was Isaac. And Isaac came from Abraham's wife, Sarah. And Sarah was not like Hagar. Not only was Sarah free and not a slave, but also Sarah was not young and fertile. Sarah was barren and old. And this is the point. Ishmael's birth with Hagar was ordinary and natural because his mother was young and fertile. Whereas Isaac's birth with Sarah could be anything but ordinary and natural. It must have been extraordinary and supernatural because Sarah was not young and fertile. Sarah was barren and old. So do you see what Abraham was choosing? By choosing Hagar first. In Abraham's mind, all right, God God promised me a son through Sarah, but I have have Hagar right here. I, I I can get this done right now. And even after God had promised to provide for him a son with Sarah, Abraham decided to get a son through ordinary, natural, human attainment that he was capable of doing on himself. He chose what he could do instead of believing what God could supernaturally do and what God had promised for him to do. He chose to rely on himself. You see Paul beginning to wind up for the spike. Paul sees the differences in Abraham's physical sons as a huge opportunity to hit hard about the point he's making. That people are included in the family of God through Christ, the moment they believe in Christ. And he uses the differences in Abraham's sons, Ishmael and Isaac, as a way to illustrate two ways to approach God. You can approach God by relying on your own works and your own achievements, or you can approach God by relying on his grace to you. So this story of Isaac and Ishmael is a good symbolic illustration of grace and works. And in verse 24, Paul says he's using this story allegorically. Ooh, that doesn't sound good. That sounds kind of squishy. Allegorically? Do we need to sound the alarm here? 
that Paul has become a liberal theologian? I thought we were supposed to read the Bible literally. Well, before we get triggered and get out our pitchforks, let's make it clear what Paul is not doing with this event from the Bible, with this story from the Bible. Paul is not questioning that the story of Abraham and his sons really happened. He's not doing that. Now, whether it's Jesus or Paul or any other human authors of the Bible, they assume that when the Bible presents events that actually happened, they assume those events actually happened. They're not denying that. You see, some would be tempted to treat the Bible as a collection of fables and myths, nice stories that don't describe historical events but just kind of give life lessons. That's not how Paul is using this story. Further, just because Paul is using this story as an illustration does not mean he's taking it and making it to mean whatever he wants. Now, we can already see that Abraham's choice of Hagar in the original story is supporting the point that Paul is making. It's not a stretch. All right, so that's what he's not doing by saying he's using this allegorically. I think that when we come to verse 24, it could be so alarming that it's an opportunity maybe to, I don't know if you have a coach in ping pong, but to call a timeout in the ping pong game and go to the sideline and talk to your coach what's going on. How should we interpret the Bible? Paul says he's using this allegorically. Gives us a good opportunity to ask, well, how should we interpret the Bible then? How should we normally do it? We should keep in mind two main principles for understanding what the Bible means. And here I'm standing on the shoulders of a lot of people who've thought through this carefully. So first, we should look for the original intent of the original author. We should look for the original intent of the original author. Doing this means asking, how does the original author wish to be understood by the original audience? And asking that keeps us from making the Bible mean whatever we want it to mean. That means we read the Bible in how it presents itself. If it presents itself as a metaphor, we read the metaphor. If it presents itself as a historical event, we read it as a historical event. So to do well in understanding the author's original intent, we have to consider how they use language. We have to consider the background of the passage, who they are writing to. We have to consider the culture in which they're writing, the, genre, the kind of thing that they're writing, the genre. How should we interpret the Bible? We should look for the original intent of the original author. And the second main principle is that we should interpret the Bible in light of the whole Bible, in light of the rest of Scripture. This is known as the analogy of faith, that the Bible has real human authors and one author behind them all. Thus, the Bible interprets itself. It is a unified book. It is God's word. All right, break. Timeout's done. We get back into the game, and Paul uses the original story of Abraham having Ishmael with Hagar and Isaac with Sarah. He uses that to illustrate two ways to approach God. The first way is the way of Hagar. 
And Paul takes up Hagar first and says that Hagar represents approaching God through relying on our own achievements and abilities. So you look at verses 24 and 25, where Paul associates Hagar with the Mount Sinai covenant, with the old covenant, the law. He associates her with the present Jerusalem, that is the majority of the Jewish people of his day. He says that the way of Hagar leads to slavery. How? How does the way of Hagar lead to slavery? Well, friends, we should look back at the original Abraham story. What happened when Abraham chose Hagar, the young and fertile woman? Well, it meant that he was choosing to have faith in his own ability. And what was the result of that choice? Relying on his own ability. Look back at the original story. It was disaster. It was disaster. Go back and read Genesis 16 to 21 and see this. That after choosing to have a son with Hagar, Abraham's wife, Sarah, was enraged with jealousy. His home was divided. There was sadness. And there was the beginning of centuries of strife between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac. Choosing Hagar, relying on his own abilities, resulted in disaster and more slavery. So knowing that original story, we can go back to who Paul's addressing. Remember, those who desire to be under the law. And for those who desire to be under the law, to rely on the law, that Mount Sinai covenant, for their status with God, those who do that are in as much spiritual slavery as Hagar. Those who believe that the way to God is through their performance are led to spiritual slavery and disaster, just like Abraham choosing Hagar. You think about this. If you are relying on your own performance or achievement or obedience, you're either always going to feel guilty or inadequate, or you will always feel self-righteous and superior to others, like you're doing way better than you actually are. That's slavery. That's disaster. So for these agitators and the many Jewish people of the day, they proudly tossed around the fact that they are sons and children of Abraham. And that's what matters. But Paul retorts and says, hold on, although you may be physically related to Abraham through Sarah, you are spiritually related to Abraham through Hagar. Your approach to God through your law performance is like Abraham relying on his own ability when choosing Hagar. And the result of relying on yourself and your law performance will be just like Ishmael, only more slavery and more disaster. He tells them, you don't trust God, you trust yourself. That's the way of Hagar. You see the shocking reversal that, that this presents. Here we have these agitators who are saying that they're the ones who actually have the freedom that these non-Jewish Christians don't have. Or Paul's saying, no, they're actually in slavery still. You're the ones who have freedom already. So this is the first way to approach God, through relying on yourself, the way of Hagar. But what's the other way? What's the other way to approach God? 
It's through God's grace. And that's the way that Sarah represents. So verses 26 to 27. Paul associates Sarah with the Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem that has already been inaugurated with the fullness of time in Christ's arrival and will be fully here when Christ's return. So whereas Hagar was associated with the old Mount Sinai covenant, Sarah is associated with the new covenant brought by Christ. And that new covenant is foreshadowed in Abraham, who God accounted as righteous because of his faith, not because of his works. So the difference between this Mount Sinai covenant and the new covenant can be summarized by this. One theologian puts it like this. In the law, that is the Mount Sinai covenant, God laid the responsibility on men and said, Thou shalt, thou shalt not. But in a new covenant of promise, God keeps the responsibility himself and says, I will. I will. It's God's provision. It's God's achievement, not ours. It's God's accomplishment. It's God's grace. So the fact that God has provided for those who are undeserving and unable is great news, as it was great news for Sarah, who is undeserving and unable on her own. So verse 27, Paul quotes Isaiah 54, verse 1. And that verse was originally written to Jewish exiles in Babylon. And those people thought that they would never return home, that they were weak, that they were helpless. But when we are weak and helpless, God is strong and mighty. Where Sarah was barren and old, God provided a child. But it's the same hope reflected in the gospel. And it doesn't matter how weak you are, how unable you are, how much of an outcast you are, the way to God's not through your accomplishments. It's through God providing for us, just like he did with Sarah. By providing the old and barren Sarah a son, God shows that our salvation is his accomplishment. He gets all the glory. So there's something else we should notice in Paul's quotation of Isaiah 54. If you're familiar, we read it earlier. What does Isaiah 54 come on the heels of? Just do math. It's Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, which talks about the suffering servants, the Messiah who was killed for our sin. And then Isaiah 54 begins with rejoice, O barren one. So the rejoicing of Isaiah 54, the rejoicing of the barren one, is made possible because of what the Messiah has done by dying for us in Isaiah 53. So you see the way Paul has spiked this? The way to approach God to be accepted and forgiven by him is not by relying on what we can do, like Abraham did with Hagar. No, the way to approach God is by relying on what God has done for us in Christ. It's like what God did for Sarah. So friends, this means that the only ones who get to God are those that they can't get to him on their own. 
They are those who know they are Sarah, not Hagar. Who know they are helpless, not strong and mighty. Think about it. If the way to get to God was through our achievements, if it was the way of Hagar, then it would only be the noblest, the most privileged, the mightiest, the most noble and moral who would get to God. There'd be no hope for the rest of us. But that's not the way. The way is God's grace. The gospel says that anyone can be brought back to God, not just the strongest, because we are not the ones who accomplish it. It's God who has done it. But it can only be by God's provision. And his provision has come fully and finally in Jesus Christ. So the truth is, friends, that none of us are like Hagar. We are all like Sarah, barren, helpless, in an impossible situation to get to the Lord on our own. But Jesus said that what is impossible with man is possible with God. That God has done this on our behalf. And Christ did what we couldn't do. He fulfilled the demands of the law. And he took the curse that we deserved because of our disobedience to the law. So when we could not get up to God, God came down to us in his son. That's the spike. Here's the point to keep the ping pong analogy closing out in verses 28 to 31. This will be much briefer. We can say that Paul, with this spike, scored four points, or three points, sorry. Three points as he shows how this biblical illustration applies to the lives of these Christians in Galatia. So, in closing, highlight three applications, all right? Number one, know who you are. Know who you are. Look at verse 28. Our status in God's family is like Isaac. It's not because of natural human process. It's completely from God's supernatural work of grace. It's God's accomplishment. That while we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God made us alive together in Christ. So friends, because our status in God's family depends on God's work for us in Christ, that means we derive our worth, our value, and our status, not from what we do, but from what God has done for us. And if our worth and our value and our status had to depend on us, then we should be insecure. Then we should never be sure of our worth, of our status. And if we are sure, we're falsely assured. Earning your worth and value and status is the bondage of Ishmael. But Christians are products of God's grace alone. Their worth, their value, their status are secure because it doesn't rest on them. It rests on what Christ has done in their place. So know who you are. Number two, know how you will be treated. Know how you will be treated. One of the ways Abraham's decision to trust in himself 
in his ordinary ability by choosing to have a son with Hagar. One of the ways that resulted in disaster was that Hagar's son, Ishmael, was said to have laughed and mocked at Isaac in Genesis 21.9. That's what Paul has in mind here in verse 29, Galatians 4. So listen, just because we know that we are a part of the people of God because of what God has done for us, just because we know that, doesn't mean God's keeping us from trials and persecutions. Friends, think of who our Lord is. Our Lord is the one who was despised and rejected by men. By people even who claimed to be religious. By people who claimed to be close to God. Friends, we should know how we will be treated. And we are sojourners and pilgrims in this world. But we can keep the same application for verse 30, that we should know how we will be treated. We should know that we should be treated poorly by the world, but we should also know that because of Christ, we will not be treated poorly by God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So here in Galatians 4.30, talks about us waiting for an inheritance. And in light of what we know to be true, and what we know to be secure because it rests on God's work, and what we know to be secure because it rests on God's work, and what we know to be secure because it rests on God's work, and what we know to be secure because it rests on God's work. And what we know to be secure because it rests on God's work. And what we know to be secure because it rests on God's work. And what we know to be secure because it rests on God's work. And what we know to be secure because it rests on God's work. And what we know to be secure because it rests on God's work. And what we know to be secure because it rests on God's work. And what we know to be secure because it rests on God's work. And what we know to be secure because it rests on God's work. And what we know to be secure because it rests on God's work. And what we know to be secure because it rests on God's work. And what we know to be secure because